Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome our guest, John Barrows. He's the CEO of J Barrows Sales Training. One of the things I love about John is that he is uh, not just a trainer, he's really a sales professional who happens to train. And we'll get a little bit into what his background was as a sales professional and how he brings some of those learnings to to what he does and what his company does. I also mentioned that John is a key strategic partner and his firm is a key strategic partner to SalesLoft. He does train us and we do recommend him to many of our of our customers. So John, welcome to the show. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. So I always start out with the the first question, which is tell me or tell the audience what one of your favorite sales or leadership books of all time was and why. I'm definitely more of a blog reader. Um, that said, the few books that I do highly recommend, uh, one of them, it's not necessarily a book on sales, it's a book on psychology. I'm a bigger fan of understanding psychology and why people do the things the way that they do them. The one that I came across that has had a pretty significant impact on the way I look at things is Influence by Robert Cialdini. It's a book on psychology and, and again, why we do the things the way that we do them. And it's all directly applicable to sales. So that's why I'm more of a fan of that type of book than anything else. Yeah, I, I have read that book and, and deeply enjoyed it. He's quite a dynamic speaker. And, and I think he breaks down, I can't remember if it's seven principles or however many principles. He really breaks down all the influence techniques into really digestible, understandable format. I like to get a little bit of understanding of people by asking them, what's the first thing you ever remember selling in your life? I think we're all in sales as soon as we're born at the end of the day, right? Because we're selling, you know, we're hungry, we're, we're trying to get money, we're trying to get allowance, <laughs> you name it. But I remember when I was probably about, I would say eight or nine years old, um, you know, those little tiny pumpkins you can buy at Halloween, right? Oh, yeah. Right, the little ones. I ended up buying a bunch of those for like a buck a pumpkin or whatever and bringing them home and then painting little cartoon figures on them like faces like funny faces and stuff like that and I brought them to school and I sold them to the kids for like five bucks a head so I had a nice little thing going there until the teacher got me in trouble for selling stuff at school um so but that yeah that was the first time I, I kind of realized I could buy something for x do a little bit uh, to it and then sell it for y and make some money so I could go out and buy my other stuff that I wanted which was pretty cool it's interesting that that selling in school is considered to be a bad thing. And I don't know that there's explicit rules against selling. In fact, so many schools have fundraisers where you're selling. Right. I think there's about 60 or 70 schools finally. Um, so we're starting to get there where you can actually get your degree in sales. But historically, it's been kind of the default profession. And one of the things I'm doing, you know, everybody's asked me when I'm going to write a book and yeah, you know, what am I going to write that hasn't already been written? So, but I decided I am going to write a book, but it's, it's a children's book and it's called, I want to be in sales when I grow up. It follows my daughter selling Girl Scout cookies for the first time and her learning, you know, going door to door and all that stuff. And, you know, the whole concept is to get sales introduced to kids at an earlier age. So they start looking at it as a true and genuine profession. Um, because no kid when asked, Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? No kid says I want to be in sales. Right. And, and I'm trying to change that. So, um, I'm pretty excited that that one's coming out sometime here in September. So keep an eye out for it. Well, you know, I mentioned that you, I, I very much view you as a, a sales professional who trains as opposed to a, a sales trainer. I'd love to just kind of start at the beginning and understand, you know, what you learned about engaging prospects. So it looked like you started your career out as 
sales and event marketing specialist at Black and Decker. Was that an internship or was that a was that like your first job out of school? No, it was first job. I mean, I I got my degree in marketing because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. You know, I was trying to combine art and music, you know, and business and that type of stuff. But then I got out into the real world and started looking at the jobs in marketing and just was not really interested in being kind of the assistant to the assistant to the assistant, waiting two years to get my 2% merit raise type of scenario. And so um, Black & Decker was really interesting because they positioned it as a sales job, but it really was an event marketing and it was the first time they had built this program. It's called the Swarm Team. Black & Decker bought DeWalt, right? So even though they tried to keep the brand separate, they were the same company. But the DeWalt Swarm Team, what it was is you got a Dodge Ram pickup truck, a bed full of tools, and you were set in a, in a region with like five or six other sales reps and a manager. And your job was to just blanket the entire region. So find all the job sites, find all the construction you know, workers and those type of things and demo DeWalt tools all day long and get them to buy them. It was sales, but it really wasn't hardcore sales because there was no quota. I mean, literally what I would do is I would walk onto a job site and if somebody liked it, you know, they'd be like, yeah, this is great. And they'd be like, cool. So next time you buy tools, could you buy these instead of the Makitas or something like that? And yeah, sure. No problem. And I'd leave. Like I, there was no, no responsibility, no accountability for it. One of the things I definitely learned was, you know, when I was selling power tools is most other reps, I mean, I love power tools. I had worked with power tools. My dad was pretty handy with his, you know, had a whole shed and everything like that. But I didn't know, like, I, I didn't, I wasn't like a construction worker, right? So what would happen was we would all come onto a job site and all the other reps would go straight to the quote unquote decision maker. And I just remember being like, well, hold on a second. You know, I mean, literally, I, I, there was no time restraints on me. I could stay, stay as long as I wanted to or whatever. So I would go onto the job site and I would actually find construction workers who were beating the crap out of tools that I was selling. And they were using like Makita or Ryobi or whatever. And I'd walk up to them and I'd be like, hey, have you ever tried the DeWalt version of that? And they'd be like, no, I'd be like, you mind like trying this thing out for a little bit? And then, in, and why don't you try it out for like a week or so? And I'll come back and, you know, basically my give to you is I will give you this tool for free to use and beat the crap out of. But my get from you is just some insights on better or worse compared to what you're doing now and use case, that type of thing. I'd give them the tool, I'd leave, I'd come back a week later and they would educate me on why this tool was either better or worse, right? How it worked, the ergonomics of it. And after I gather that information, then I would go to the foreman and say, hey, I've been working with a bunch of your workers here, you know, understanding their, how they do things or whatever. And they're telling me that they have some frustrations with their existing tool line that's X, Y, and Z. And the DeWalt brand really, you know, because I got their feedback, they really like this. So what are your thoughts on that? And the guy was like, wait a minute, you're telling me my, my workers are, would be happier if I bought these instead? And these are the reasons why? Yeah, definitely. And so I used to get a lot bigger orders because I did that due diligence of, understanding real use case as opposed to just pitching why the gears inside the stupid tool were better, right? You can learn something from anybody anywhere, right? So treat everybody the same because you can learn something from them. Yeah. I mean, what you said is so insanely relevant to enterprise selling. There's this whole question, should you come in low or should you start high? And to your point, there's never like one right answer, but in this instance, it's basically when you start low, you basically gather all the information about what the challenges are with their current state. And if you're lucky, give them a little bit of taste of what the future could be like. And then when you ultimately do call on power, you're coming in with real information for them, right? I mean, it's super valuable for them to know what their people are struggling with. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a whole trend right now going on in sales around design thinking. So they're applying design thinking to sales and design thinking for you know people who don't know it is, it's like Apple, right? Apple looks at the way you work. That's why, for instance, the iPad is so intuitive, right? It's the same thing in sales, design thinking, for instance, if you want to sell to Walmart, okay, go to Walmart, walk the aisles, go through the checkout process, sign up for their newsletter, see how they market to you and and gather that insight and then bring your kind of, hey, I've learned about the workflows in the business. Now, here's my thought process on how you can improve those with our solution, right? Also, I went from Black & Decker to Xerox where I got my formal sales education because, I mean, talk about selling a commodity, right? Like copiers are about as commoditized as it gets. And I also sold to the government. So it wasn't even like I could negotiate on contract. My price was my price. So that's really where I learned relationship selling and design thinking, even though I didn't really know it as such. I was almost forced to do it. First, I was trying to do what every other sales rep at Xerox was doing, which was just go flip copiers, right? I'd walk in and they'd be like, they wouldn't even want to look at me. So I could not just go in and sell a copier just because I was Xerox. Every day, I would go to the top of the building and I would just work my way down. And I would sit there and I'd meet with people. I'd talk to them. I'd understand their workflows, uh, the layout of their office and everything else. Six months in, I wasn't selling anything. Like my boss almost fired me, but I kind of pushed back on him. I was like, look, you brought me in here for a very specific reason. You gave me this territory that's been burned to the ground. There's no way these clients are going to buy from us if I don't repair some of this trust that's been fractured here. So let me do this, right? And so about nine months into that stint at Xerox, I ended up coming to my boss with like, well, coming to all my clients with like this stack of this plan, basically, that's that showed them their click-through rates, their walk-arounds and, you know, the layout of their office and then said if they had transitioned it digital instead of analog, then this is how much money they would save and how much more efficient. And it was like taking candy from a baby. You know, a- after that, because I had built a rapport and the relationships and I had come to them with some insights that they didn't know anything about, you know, they were like, yeah, let's do this. And so I remember walking into my boss's office and dropping three huge contracts on this table saying, see, you know, just let me do this and back off and it'll come, you know, it'll work out. But, you know, that's kind of where I learned uh, relationship selling, um, learned really how to build relationships and bring value to the client um, while selling a commodity. You mentioned the commodity piece about the copiers a couple of times. Do you feel that the copiers were even more of a commodity than the DeWalt power tools? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, a thousand. I mean, 40 pages a minute is 40 pages a minute. It ultimately doesn't matter what you sell. It it matters in what you believe in what you sell, Mm. right? Because for me, that's my number one recommendation to reps looking for a job in sales is, is first and foremost, find out like, what are your core values? Like, what do you value as a, as a human? Right. And then go find a company that mirrors those values and then find a product that you can believe in. Right. Because if you don't believe in what you're selling, Sales is a hard enough job as it is, right? But if you don't believe in what you're selling, then it's a thousand times harder. And you're the one, if you don't believe in what you're selling, you're the jackass that gives us a bad name, right? Because if you're just in there for a commission check and those type of things, people can sense that. Um, And that's why the perception of sales is as bad as it is. Two of the four components I have when I pick a job it would obviously in a good market when you have the luxury of doing that. But uh, number number one, you know, just as you said, is basically the values fit. And for me, that's about the organization being nurturing. You know, not you can do better than non-toxic. It has to be nurturing. Number two is is meaning in the work. I went through all phases in the last 25 years of my career of what meaning meant. But to me, these days, it just means that I believe in the product that I'm selling so much 
that I would sell it to a friend or family member and think I was making their life easier, better in some way. I'm not trying to save the world, just that's good enough for me. My other two things are that I'm learning and growing, which is pretty much always true because I get the opportunity to talk to people like you. The fourth thing for me is that there's some degree of operational discipline in the company, but you hit on two of my four straight on. Cool. Yeah. And then just to round out the background, then I, after that, I started a company with a couple of buddies of mine from high school doing outsourced IT services to the SMB market. And that's really where I was forced to do everything, right? We had no budget, uh, no funding. And so I was the VP of sales and marketing at 25 years old, knowing nothing. The one thing that is hard to find out about a rep and something that I am challenged with these days is the whole work ethic component to it. You know, I, I'm trying to figure out for my parents, like, what did you do to instill a healthy work ethic in me? And, you know, they don't have any really concrete examples of how they did it, but for some reason they did. And I always say to reps in your 20s, just work your ass off in your 20s, try out everything, make as many mistakes as you possibly can make because the, the risk is low, right? So for me, I mean, I worked hard, play hard type of thing, but I was working seven days a week, you know, getting up every morning, going to at least, you know, I was, I think I was part of like at least three or four networking groups on a, on a weekly basis where I'd meet at seven o'clock in the morning, share leads. And then I would make cold calls and go on meetings all afternoons. And then I would go to networking events every single night. And I just was everywhere around Boston, shaking hands, kissing babies, everything. And we ended up being the fastest growing company in Massachusetts for a few years in a row. And then we sold off to Staples. Staples came and bought us. And, you know, that's where I realized I, I really just was not a corporate guy. Like the corporate world does not fit with me. I like working with corporations. I hate working in corporations because I just, I don't have a filter and I, and I really don't like playing politics. So after a, while, after a little while, Staples, they offered me another position, uh, which was a really nice way of firing me. And I was looking for a job and his company Basho, which was a training company. And it was a training I took when I was at Thrive. And I really, really liked it because it was super tactical. It was no BS. But um, they approached me and said, you know, do you want to be a trainer? And my answer was absolutely not because most trainers I had come across up until that point in my career were either failed sales professionals or professional presenters. And if, you, if you've ever been through a training, we could just tell the trainers never actually done what they're telling you what to do, you know, and... That was me because I, I just didn't want to be that guy. And they said, don't worry, like you have to actually use these techniques to sell so you can train so you can get paid. And I was like, oh, all right, kind of like the whole practice what you preach thing. To make a real long story short, they uh, they screwed it all up and I took it over. So eight years ago, went off with a business partner of mine, like they uh, literally 2007 hit and new CEO came in, crashed the company and, and basically burned it to the ground. Uh, a couple of the senior trainers and I scooped it up, started another business, basically taking over the training org. And then about six years ago, I went off on my own with Jay Barrows. Uh, just to, I just had a burning desire to go off and do my own thing. So uh, now I've been doing this for the past six years by myself. And uh, yeah, working with some cool companies like you guys, Salesforce, um, Google, Slack, all sorts of fun companies, LinkedIn, Box, Dropbox, that type of stuff, training their reps on the techniques that work. I just want to circle back to something that you mentioned about reps and becoming successful. Yeah, I, I see the same thing, right, with SDRs and AEs and, and everything else, right, is that there are precious few who hustle with the future in mind, right? Some of them are just kind of, I mean, they wouldn't admit it, but they seem to just be earning the paycheck. And then there are some who know that that they are building the foundation of their future success right now through their hard work and through the network that they're building and the skills that they're accumulating. So, uh, you know, for the certainly for the younger listeners, you cannot discount that. And there is no, you know, there is no easy way, right? It's luck and skill and hard work all combined. Yeah, I believe you make your own luck. I, you know, I went to a state school. I drank my way through college. You know, I'm not the brightest bulb in the bunch, but I'll outwork you. 
There's no question about it. Because there's one thing I know I can control. I, you know, I can't control all the time what the client does. I can't control what my competition does. I know I can control my effort. And I think to your point also, as far as, you know, the, the short term versus long term, it's funny to me how many sales reps are out there and they, they come to me all the time and they're like, hey, John, I'm looking to switch jobs, you know, because I'm really not happy with what I'm doing right now. And I say, okay, cool. So any advice, right? And, and my first question to them is, all right, well, what's your plan? What, what you know, let, what's your five-year plan? And that always used to be a question that I used to kind of roll my eyes at in interviews, like, hey, what do you want to be in five years? But I don't know whether it's age or experience or whatever, but I've come back around on that question quite a bit now. Like, what is, like, lifestyle-wise, what kind of lifestyle do you want to be living five years out? And, and what does that look like, okay? And then based on that lifestyle, now back into that saying, okay, well, what kind of job do I need to have to live that kind of lifestyle? And what kind of money do I need to be making to live that kind of lifestyle? From there, then you align values and, and believe in what you sell and all that stuff. But if you don't have a plan, then you're just going to be bouncing around short term to short term, right? Because look, if you don't have a plan, so here's the deal for me, I could eat a shit sandwich for a year if it's going to help me get to that next level of my career, that's going to ultimately help me achieve my goal. But if I don't have a big picture, you know, five year out goal or plan for where I want to be in my life, then I'm just going to go from eating shit sandwich to eating shit sandwich to shit sandwich. You know what I mean? And I'm going to be looking for better tasting shit sandwiches. So, and I'm always going to be grass is greener scenario, right? I mean, SDRs kill me. Like they'll, they'll pop from one company to the next because they go from one company because it's easy and there's a ton of inbound leads and it's a hot company. But all of a sudden those leads dry up a little bit and they're now having to do some, you know, some of their own prospecting and they're like, oh, screw this. Let me go bounce to another company. As opposed to looking at it as mastering that stage of their career and really sinking their teeth into it before they move to the next level. I mean, so many people look at the SDR role as this stepping stone, and I just really encourage them not to. Prospecting itself is one of the most important things you could do and get great at at every stage of your sales career. I think the actual predictable revenue model of breaking down SDR, BDR, AE, that type of thing, I, I think it's great for growth of companies. I think it severely stunts the growth of sales reps, though, because they, you know, you're not a well-rounded sales rep for 10 years into your career if you follow a typical trajectory, which is great if you have the patience to do it. Um, whereas when I was in sales, it was, hey, here's your territory, good luck. And you had to prospect, meet, and kill everything that you had or else you were getting fired. So the bad news about that is a lot of people who got into sales got out really fast because they were like, I can't do this. You know, this is, I can't do all this well, so screw it. The good news is, is those of us that survived that became very, very well-rounded sales reps very quickly, but we were forced to, to jump into the deep end effectively and learn and really through school of hard knocks, just learning through experience, figure it out. I think there's a little bit too much spoon feeding these days and a little bit too much coddling through every stage. And that has led to the lack of patience for reps who, you know, are trying to get to that next level because they see, you know, their role as, yeah, yeah, whatever. I want to get to that enterprise sales, you know, rep role, which, you know, isn't the be all end all these days anymore. Yeah. Well, uh, I think you mentioned prospecting, which is a good segue into one of our main themes for the day, which is to talk a little bit about email best practices and how those have evolved. As we were talking about before, SalesLoft put out this thing called the Ultimate Guide to B2B Sales Email Optimization. Uh, which has gotten kind of interesting response, right? Some people love it, some people hate it, and I'd uh, love to talk through with you maybe some of the things that stood out to you as either ringing true or or being dangerously false. 
<laughs> well, it's it's a challenge for me to say anything's false right now because the people who are violently against it, I, w- I would challenge you to ask yourself, is that based on your opinion or is it based on some sort of data set? Because what I'm doing right now is I'm looking at the data sets. I mean, you guys, Sales Loft, you have the ability to analyze millions and millions and millions of cadences that go through your system. So right now, it's no longer about my opinion, Okay. What I think everybody should be doing is taking the data that's out there from these providers like you and then using that data and then saying, okay, wherever you don't think, whatever you don't agree with, then come up with an alternative approach and split test it against what that data says. Because, you know, trainers forever have gotten away with spewing shit that doesn't work, right? Or it might have worked four, five, six years ago when they were doing it, but now it doesn't. And if you're not using the data, I I just think you're being a fool. And so I'll give you an example, like small things that you guys pulled out, like your putting you or your in the subject line now decreases the open rates of emails by something like, I don't know, 12 or 14%. Which in the old days, by the way, Basho said was a good thing, right? But things change over time. You and I had never talked about this before, but you do have quite an evolved view of how we want people to use the data. So to your point, we're approaching probably a billion interactions between our customers and their prospects. So the data is kind of the data. And I'm trying to be careful to say like all of this is correlation, not causation. Causation is incredibly difficult to prove. And in fact, you hit on really the the one way that you can do it, which is then to A-B split test stuff and see what happens. Somebody asked me recently, John, now that you're, you know, 43, whatever, if you could go back and tell your 22-year-old self something, what would it be? Maybe split test everything you do. And I mean this across the board. Marketing does this, you know, ad nauseum because they split test subject lines, they split test everything. And sales reps, we just kind of do. But if you look at sales, again, more scientifically than artistically, and you start to split test things, you start to figure things out a lot faster. So example here, right? So a weak introduction for me has always been, hey, how you doing today? I think mainly because I prospected mostly into Boston and New York for the majority of my career. And when I call into somebody in Boston, New York, and I say, hey, how you doing today? If I don't get hung up on, I get fine. What? So I've always said that's a stupid. And by the way, you don't care. Like, you don't care how I'm doing. So st- shut up, right? So I've always said, do the intro of, hey, thanks for taking my call. Do you have a few moments? Right? So it's polite. And then it asks for permission. And it doesn't state your name first, right? And usually what I get is, well, not really, but who is this? What do you want? I say, well, this is John with J. Barrow Sales Training, and the reason for my call today is, right? And I get into the reason for my call. Now, that's always worked for me, and that's what I've taught people to do. Now, Gong Data came out recently and said, actually, the best introduction, it starts with, hi, this is John Barrows with J. Barrow Sales Training. How have you been? Like, just that shift, how have you been, as opposed to, hey, how are you doing today? Now, I look at that, and I'm like, but the data says that that's the best, and it's like 6x higher than the average. But I mean, who am I to, to conflict millions of data points, right? So now what I'm personally doing literally right now is uh, when I make cold calls, I'm split testing it. For an entire week, I'm doing the, hey, how have you been, right? Hi, this is John Barrows with J. Barrow Sales Training. How have you been? And then for another week, I'm doing, hey, thanks for taking my call. Do you have a couple of minutes? Well, this is John with J. Barrow and the reason for my call. And I'm split testing those to see which ones get me into the conversation better. So even simple stuff like that, right? You can split test gatekeepers. You can split test objection handling techniques, right? Start to figure out what works and what doesn't for you. I had a couple of thoughts on what you just said. So one is I, I think that part of the gong thing is separating that into two pieces. You know, hi, this is John as opposed to hi, this is John Barrows. The thought of kind of why the, the first name, last name works is that it conveys more authority. 
And then the how have you been, I, I think, serves as a pattern interrupt. You only expect that from people who are close to you. I do feel a little uncomfortable with that one, but I do know a lot of folks are starting to use that now. Yeah. And you know what? Next year, it's going to be different. So that's why I'm using this data right now to say, okay, let's do this now uh, because if it works, it works. And then let's pay attention to it. Split testing is also a way that you can make this job a lot more interesting. Because if you just show up every day and you're, you're like, hey, I'm going to make my 50 dials today, right? Like if you make 50 dials and get no meetings, that's a terrible day for anybody out there, right? But if you make 50 dials and instead of making 50 dials with like some bland generic elevator pitch, you come up with two different approaches and you make 25 dials with one approach and 25 dials with another approach. Even if you still get no meetings, that's actually not a bad day. For me, if I didn't hit my, the results that I wanted to hit that day, but I can walk home and say I figured something out, to me, that's a much better day, right? And it keeps me motivated to keep moving in sales. Because if again, if you just roll in every day and say, oh, I got to do my activities and man, here we go, right? I mean, shit, after two or three months of that, you're going to want to jump out a window. The way to keep it from yourself from getting bored is to gamify what you're doing track on the spreadsheet how many calls you made with each type of introduction and and how many positive responses you got of each type and you're going to make the day more interesting and also learn something incredibly powerful yeah absolutely and that's where you can do the self-training you know what i mean where you can't rely on your company to invest in you you can't you know look it's great if you do to your point you know align your values and continuous learning and all that other stuff but a lot of people are working in jobs right now that their company doesn't invest in them and don't sit there and just bitch and complain about it that you're not getting invested and if that's the case you're going to be average for the rest of your life otherwise take it upon yourself i mean there's so much free content out there it's absolutely ridiculous all you got to do is spend an hour a day while you know in your morning routine as you're drinking coffee instead of checking your fantasy leagues and that type of stuff Read a couple of blogs, you know, watch a couple of videos on YouTube about very specific techniques that you can apply throughout the day and then apply them that day and see how they worked for you. And then tomorrow, pick a couple of new ones and just do that and forget about the investment that your company is or isn't making in you. Awesome. Well, I appreciate all the incredibly actionable advice that you shared with folks today. I learned a lot as usual talking to you. If people do want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to, to reach you? Yeah, I mean, just the website's the easiest, right? Just go to jbarrows.com, which is the letter J-B-A-R-R-O-W-S.com. On there, you're going to find a bunch of stuff. The blog, where I try to write super actionable tips on a weekly basis. The resource library that has, I'd say, 80% of what I train for free, I give away with videos and tips and ideas there. And then you can follow us on all the social channels. Uh, myself and Morgan Ingram, we're doing our best to show what it's like tactically every day to be in sales and share techniques that are working and stuff that's not. You know, We really do believe that in order to be a quote unquote influencer, you have to practice your craft and you have to be up to date on your craft. And so hopefully you know, people see through Instagram stories, uh, Snapchat and LinkedIn and stuff like that. They see some stuff that is going to help them excel. So you can hit us up on any one of those channels. I would second the notion on following both John and his his partner in crime there, Morgan Ingram. They both produce fantastic content, it seems like, pretty much every day. Well, John, thanks again so much for your time. Yeah, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. And thanks to everyone for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klinkshern. 
This episode was edited by Peter Lopento. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thank you for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.